Good morning, heart and soul, and a special good morning to those of you who are joining us online in our virtual community. Thank you for joining us uh, consciously and intentionally on this adventure in faith. Ah, and as we do, as we be black history, not just as a specific celebration during a specific time, but as we live it and as we acknowledge that black history is simply history. It's American history. It's world history. It is history. And I am so very grateful to Heart, and I send a, a, uh, a shout out to Heart and Soul member Jacqueline Olive, who we know and have celebrated and supported her film, Always in Season. Well, Jackie is also um, a director, um, and her film, uh, co-directing with Barack Goodman, her, the documentary is Lincoln's Dilemma, and it's on Apple TV+. Plus. It uh, launched Friday night, and I encourage us to support it, to view it, to be aware. It offers a more complete history of Lincoln's journey to end slavery. And, you know, it's interesting when we make heroes, we seldom make them whole people. We invariably create an image and then lift that up and that image becomes the thing rather than the person and so they are kind of decoding and so i want to just share the apple tv plus trailer with you just to maybe inspire you or at least remind you to schedule it with viewing and if you don't have apple tv plus then you know somebody who does get with them and support our sister in this documentary. Here we go. What we're seeing today 
is dramatic evidence of what happens when you fail to talk honestly about your history. And it harkens to the mid-19th century during the Civil War. So Lincoln becomes important to reflect on the issues of division that we're seeing today. Abraham Lincoln has outwitted just about as many historians as politicians of his own day. Unless you understand what is going on around what he is saying, you can never really understand Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln did not start his presidency to be the great emancipator. It's not a phrase Lincoln asked to be applied to himself, and we can do better. Frederick Douglass is every bit the equal of the president of the United States. He's constantly in Lincoln's ear, pushing him on black humanity. As the voices that have access to Lincoln change, Lincoln himself changes in response. Lincoln's number one agenda is unification. It is not the abolition of slavery. Lincoln was forced to reckon with slavery due to black people themselves. He came to think that out of this would come something truly monumental. Lincoln is talking about doing something pretty radical here. Something really important inside of him was opening up. He was trying to navigate the currents of really irreconcilable ideas. So I encourage us to somehow work it out where we can view the entire series. There are, I think, about four episodes um, to this docu-series. Frederick Douglass features prominently in it because there's no way to talk about uh, President Abraham Lincoln during that Emancipation Proclamation time and all the considerations because as you heard just there in the, in the trailer, that Frederick Douglass was in his ear. And, but I, I, I kind of want to, you know, sometimes, especially I think during black history, I thought about it this time, maybe for the first time, that I'm not sure that when y'all hear me speak to uh, folks, and I almost said notable, but often I'm bringing names to you and an awareness of history that has been a bit covered that hasn't, not, hasn't necessarily been what I would say curbside folks, the folks that, that we automatically think of when we think of black history and the folks who contributed in major ways. But I am always thinking spiritual principles. So there's something about as a black woman in these United States that I would still do the work to uncover some of these individuals. And when I'm bringing it on on a Sunday morning, I am often thinking of principles or concepts that fit, that dovetail with what I teach and endeavor to practice. And so this morning, I am thinking about at the micro level how life gets to be the way it is. And we often speak of that 
And sometimes we are speaking of it in the micro when we're looking at an individual life, and often we are speaking of it in a more macro uh, sense where we're talking in global sense and we're thinking about our individual responsibility and the impact of our individual thinking and actions on the globe, on, on all life, on universality. And when I look at Frederick Douglass's story, when I look at the story that he told, his own narrative, um, I am touched by the thread in the fabric of his life that is the determination, the persistence, the perseverance, the absolute clarity, all of the spiritual principles that speak to his determination for freedom and liberation. And in an environment, <coughs> pardon me, where nothing is encouraging that, I just, you know, I almost want to just lay out right here, and establish the fact that, that too often, you know, it's, there's something about the generation of which I'm a part. My parents and their peers had a sense of speaking to us as if we had no excuse whatsoever. And when I say it whatsoever, I tried. I was good at coming up with some. But none of it cut the mustard. It was always as if they were standing in some place of awareness of almost like a, how dare you? How dare you try to take a shortcut? Do you know from whence you've come? How dare you act like you can't go the whole way with this? How dare you act like this is too difficult for you? Do you have any idea? And now we kind of laugh about, I, we, we, the, the comedians have even made the joke about how you walk uh, to school uphill, both ways uphill. You, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's the, the, the hard story of how difficult it was for them and their ancestors. And that they were so busy trying to convey that, that, it, you know, sometimes it got a little out of hand, whatever story they were going to tell you about just how hard it was. And because we didn't know anything personally about it being that hard, it just got funny to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, never to anybody's face. Don't, you know, I, don't, I, I wouldn't want you to think that you would ever have gotten a chance to meet me. <laughs> I've been saying aloud the things I was thinking about it. But when I think about Frederick Douglass, and I think about how, well, you know, I've had, I can't even call mine difficulties in the context. I would have if I wasn't talking about Frederick Douglass. I could lay out for you just how hard my life has been on occasion. There were promotions I should have had in the workplace that I didn't have. And, you know, I'm just like, you can hear Frederick just like, big girl, please. You don't even know. But when I think about his story from his narrative, and I'm going to share some portions because he wrote the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. Excuse me. 
a memoir in 1845. And he's talking about his life, and he's also talking about it from the vantage point of a former enslaved person and an abolitionist during, um, and he's writing this, of course, as, as a free man in Massachusetts. So he writes there 11 chapters that recount his life as a slave and his ambition to become a free person. And he describes his life, and this is what is very different, is in some of his, in the slave narrative, first of all, he's eloquent, let me just say that. But he's able to describe his experience in terms that give us, he's really telling, he's an amazing storyteller because he's telling us of this trauma and this violence, but from a place he's, he's healed. He can tell it from a healed place, which means he can really look at it and discern what was really happening. And it's brilliant work in, in that sense, especially. So Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, who was born enslaved in Maryland's eastern shore, and although he never knew the exact date of his birth, and he talks about that, how that was withhold, withheld from slaves. So they tended to know what season they were born, what, they were, what was being planted. They knew that kind of information. But they did not know their date of birth, and they really often did not know their parents. They had the rumor of, it might have been the slave master, or they would know it was some white man. And often, because they separated children from mothers so early, they would know that there was typically an, an elder woman who could no longer work in the fields or in the house, but they would raise kind of all the children. And his mother, he said, would sometimes come at night and help him to go to sleep, like just get in the, on the mat with him, so to speak. But then when he awakened, she was gone. So he saw her so few times, and it said that she passed when he was about seven or eight years old. Um, but once he was free, he decided he, would, he chose a date. So he made his birthday, February 14th, 1818. He had a sense of being born one year or the other. He didn't know, and he decided to pick something based on, on his own. Um, and then after he escaped, he's changed his name from um, Bailey to Johnson. And then where he was located, there were so many Johnsons, he ultimately made another choice um, for once he was married and Douglas, and both he and his wife, Anna Murray, accepted the name Douglas, but it was of their choosing in that way. There, there are a few excerpts that I want to, that I want to share with you. Um, part of it is that as a youngster, um, he is sold or is inherited by a member of a family and, go, and ends up in, so he's in Baltimore at this point, and the woman of the slave master um, teaches him the alphabet. But when her husband finds out, he interrupts all of that. But Frederick Douglass, I guess Bailey at the time, hears what he's saying. And he's essentially saying, if you teach him to read, you, you can't keep him as a slave. 
he'll no longer be enslavable as easily enslavable. He'll be restless himself. So this, he doesn't, he says like he doesn't fully understand all of it, but he gets a sense that this is something he needs to pursue. And so he goes on on his own and, and he gets the kids to teach him and the, the white children, you know, they have their notebooks like the journal and they have to write all the schoolwork. Well, once they've completed that grade or that booklet, they put it aside. Well, he gets it. And so he's teaching himself, and the kids are teaching him, and there's a moment in how life, remember, I'm talking about how life gets to be the way it is. Don't forget what I'm talking about here. So there's a moment where he now challenges boys he know can read. And it's like, I can read better than you. And then you do the proving, but he's learning. He knows he can't, and they doubt it. But all the, how life gets to be the way it is. So I, I want you to just, I want you to watch a, 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 a mind that where somebody has their, their boot, the attempt is to have their boot on the mind of humanity. And yet, he does not give up his vision. He knows that there's some connection. And then he, he, be, he begins to hear this word, abolition. And he doesn't know what it is, <clears throat> but in the context that it's used, he is intrigued. And so he, um, excuse me, and so he keeps trying to find out about abolition. And ultimately, he realizes what it is. And then he is, he's, all about it. I mean, he's, he's all in at that point. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, there's a point at which he gets, his master dies, and he ends up, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm, okay, I'm going to be all right here. <laughs> Thank you. And he gets moved, and he realizes that he should have tried to run away. So if you just think about that thought, so in that movement, he now is recording the movement of the boat. He's like, something about this, I'm going to need to know about this, this movement. And he's about 16, 17, I think, about this point, maybe, and, um, or a little younger. And ultimately, where he ends up, he, through circumstances, he ends up going to what I'm going to call, clearly they did, a slave breaker. So in that time, there were those folks who specialized in ensuring that when you brought them your slaves, they would, quote, break them, which would really be to break their will, to beat them and be so, traumatize them so, that there would be no, the idea would, now as I say this aloud, it doesn't make sense because I understand trauma and I understand that you really don't want to have a bunch of folks serving you who are traumatized. But that apparently wasn't understood then. But you, I mean, now I'm off topic. Forgive me. Um, so, so he's with this man, Covey, who is a slave breaker, but he's also, I think, a deacon, if not a pastor. And so, so we have these... We, we have this, this conflict in, in characterization. And, uh, but this serves Frederick Douglass ultimately because 
when this man, there comes a time, I think, when he's about to tie him up. He's beaten him. But, you know, when you have this spirit, like Frederick Douglass has, that's only going to go so far. There's a moment when you can almost predict, which is why they were busy in the business of breaking certain personalities and slave characteristics, characteristics of some enslaved people. And so he fights back. And he says they must have, in, in his writing about this, he said they must have fought for a couple of hours. But ult- and nobody would help him. There were no white folks around. And every, uh, every slave, enslaved person he called, he, they just, they like, I ain't in this, you know, in a, in a manner of speaking. And so once this was over, he had gotten the best of Covey. But Covey couldn't tell it or wouldn't tell it because his business was breaking slaves. how life gets to be the way it is. So at that point, he's in a little different situation, but he knows he has to have a plan. So this is where uh, I I, want to tell you about this. So, um, So he decides that he's going to absolutely escape in in uh, 1835, he begins to say, you know, this year cannot come to an end without me getting away. And so they plot. He and some friends, he's, he's, he has befriended some other enslaved people, and he's teaching them to read. And in this plot, Frederick Douglass literally writes a note. He writes a freedom thing. Oh, I thought I had it marked, but I did not. Um, And uh, it's essentially a pass. And it says that these particular black folks are are to go to Baltimore for uh, Easter. So this is a pass, and it has the date and all. He has written it. Well, there's a moment at which that I can't figure out, how did he know? But he realizes he's been betrayed. He and the fellows have been betrayed. But there's nothing that is so specific here that we can all see it. But there's a moment that he knows we've been betrayed. But what I love watching is the way his mind works from there. So they get captured, and there's a whole scuffle that goes on. But in the scuffle, he manages to get his note, his pass, into the fire. So he doesn't have one. So now somebody comes with some biscuits for them, but, and for everybody, I think, but him, because the woman is saying, that she knows it was him who got the other, father, other fellows involved in this, this escape plan. And so while they're on the wagon and they're taking them, wherever they're taking them, one of the brothers says, what am I going to do with this note? <laughs> well, in my words, you know, my translation of what, what about the note? He said, eat it with the biscuit. Now, I just want to go on record to say <laughs> The trauma of having been enslaved, this is not free people who don't know what slavery is going to be. This is somebody who's been enslaved all of his life. In the moment that comes, now see, if if y'all were here in the room with me right now, I would ask you, what would you say? I don't know that among our group, there would be two people who would say, eat it with the biscuit. But that's what the guy did because, of course, he had a biscuit and they expected that he was going to eat it. They would not know. Now we know because we've had some people in the news been eating stuff. 
but we would not necessarily have thought about that before, that just eat it with the biscuit and that would destroy the evidence. But when I got there, I thought, do you see the footsteps? Do you see, can you see all of, can you see the yellow brick road that he is following here to his own liberation? Can you see that the mind who you, that cannot be held enslaved is going to be free no matter what? It does not matter the systems that are set. It does not matter who purchased who catches, who whips, it is going to unfold in the perfect and right order. How life gets to be the way it is, is by consciousness. Let me just try to find my little place here. All right, so, so they're caught. He's in jail, and he ends up back with, with the, um, I believe it's with the original owner whose wife was trying to teach. I believe it's part of that family, let me say it that way. So in the early part of 1838, now it's three years later, because in 35 is when he's tried to, okay. And so um, he now has a trade. He's learned to trade as a caulker. So now he can, his owner can lease him out, but he also is leasing himself out, son. And so what he ends up doing at some point is he begins placating the owner. So, and he says, I think specifically here, he says, oh, yes, 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 yes. He says the owner told him I could go nowhere but that he could get me. And that in the event of my running away, he should spare no pains in his efforts to catch me. He said that, that I should content myself and be obedient. He said, I would be happy. If I would be happy, I must lay out no plans for the future. This is the coaching he's getting from the man who is said to own him. Um, lay out no plans for the future. He says, if I behave myself properly, he'd take care of me. And he advised me to complete thoughtlessness of to complete thoughtlessness of the future, and taught me to depend solely upon him for happiness. He seemed to see fully the pressing necessity of setting aside my intellectual nature in order to ensure contentment in slavery. But in spite of him, and even in spite of myself, I continued to think and to think about the injustice of my enslavement and the means of escape. How life gets to be the way it is. Not he's not complaining about him because he knows Mr. Man is doing what Mr. Man does because he wants to be Mr. Man. But as for me and my house, we're going to continue to envision ourselves free and move in that direction. So he goes on to talk about how all of that happens, and he's working steadily. And he's, he says here, uh, his intention in working steadily to remove any suspicion that he might entertain of my intent to run away. And in this, I succeeded admirably. I suppose he thought I was never better satisfied in my condition than at the very time during which I was planning my escape. So at the very time, do you see what I'm saying? So he's planning his escape, but he is showing up so diligently that all things are more relaxed. 
around it. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? Things went on without it very smoothly. And uh, he said the trouble was within him because he so hated to leave the people he cared about. And so all the while he's planning, and sure enough, on September 3rd, 1838, he gets to New York. He does not tell us how. And he speaks about how, at some point in his narrative, about his concern about the Underground Railroad, because it's really above ground railroad, he says, but all this talking about how folks got where they're going, I think he's, he's a man cut from my own cloth. It's just like, shut up about all that. Just, you know, just go on. And so he doesn't tell us how he got to New York. He says, but I left my chains and succeeded in reaching New York without the slightest interruption of any kind. How I did so, what means I adopted, what direction I traveled, and by what mode of conveyance, I must leave unexplained for the reasons aforementioned. And of course, we know that when he got there, because I've already talked to you about David Ruggles, so you know that David Ruggles found him and supported him, and, and you, you know, we see it all, and we know that, um, if, so he got there September 3rd, he sent for his uh, beloved Anna, and they married on September 15th of 1838, and um, I want to share with you very quickly about this name change. So it says while at breakfast, now he's now in New Bedford, um, because it, he felt it wasn't safe for him to stay in New York at that time, he was asked, you know, what you going to be called? And he said, well, my mother named me Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey. He dispensed with the two middle names and had gone by Bailey, but when he was coming out of Baltimore escaping, he called himself Stanley. And so he then changed his name to Frederick Johnson. When he was, got to New Bedford, there were so many Johnsons, he just wanted to distinguish. And, and so he ended up with, somebody suggested that from reading The Lady of the Lake, it was suggested that his name be Douglas. And so that's how he took the name Frederick Douglas. And I just want you to know that within four months of the publication of the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, over 5,000 copies were sold. Now today, that would be impressive. But by 1860, almost 30,000 copies were sold. And he then left Massachusetts and sailed to New England and Ireland, I'm sorry, to England and Ireland for two years for fear of being recaptured. You know, because his book is out now, he's all of that. So, um, but his, while he was away, his supporters paid $710.96 to purchase his emancipation. He said that one of the reasons, and this, there's so many times when I feel like what I'm reading could have been written last month. He says that one of the more significant reasons he published his narrative was to offset the demeaning manner in which white people viewed him. Because even though he was a magnificent orator, when he spoke in public, his white abolitionist associates, he said, established limits around what he could say on the platform. They did not want him to analyze the current slavery issues or to shape the future for black people. And he said that once he wrote his book, though, that that meant that he was given greater breadth and scope about what he could say. 
he went on record, of course, in saying that knowledge makes man unfit to be a slave, and that I prayed for freedom for 20 years, but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. This is akin to what we say, which is treat and move your feet. And so Frederick Douglass is an example of that, of praying, but there's a point at which he realized he needed to move. And in moving, was guided. So look, there's something about acknowledging how blessed we are at any point in every endeavor, giving thanks for everything. We're blessed when we come and when we go. We cast down false beliefs, sickness and poverty has ceased for the truth has been revealed. We are blessed from the morning to the midnight hour. It's for us to know that it's working out. Always we are blessed. I'm going to let Donnie Lee tell you about being blessed. Everybody say blessed, 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 Just for my good, it's working out. 
I don't have to worry about a thing. See, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. it's working, it's working out, it's working out, it's working out, it's working out, it's working out. Say yeah, yes, yes, it's working out, it's working out, and I'm glad about it. That was Donnie Lee. I know y'all heard the part of Bless that says it's working out. So when I read Frederick Douglass's story, there are, those, there are those times when it looks like it's not working out, but everything is giving him more information, more experience, inciting him, inspiring him in ways that ensure his ultimate success. I hope this is making sense. So look, now we're on the other side of slavery for Frederick Douglass. It does not mean that it is safe for him. It just means that he is officially a free man for as long as he can stay out of the arms of slave catchers. Do you understand how perilous things still are? So what is happening now, we're in the 1860s, and I'm going to start with around this time, really just before the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, there was a, um, oh shoot, what do you call it? A, a, a pre, the draft, if you will, the year before. Um, in uh, like mid-62, 1862, that was different. The southern slates, the southern states, the slaveholding states, those main ones, rather objected. But so at this point, we have Frederick Douglass, who is um, really promoting military service for black men. So fugitive enslaved people are signing up for the Union Army. And he's encouraging this, but when Douglas realizes that if they're, when they're captured by Confederate troops, they're tortured, all kinds of things are happening, and the government is not doing anything. And that is not the way it happens. When, when you capture prisoners, there's a whole thing that, you know, they even have rules in war. Y'all understand what I'm saying? So it wasn't, that didn't start with the Geneva Convention. There are those things that they would never have done to white prisoners. And so he's saying, oh no, I can't be out here encouraging them to sign up when this is what's going to happen. They have no protections whatsoever, as few, as the, as few protections as there are. And he had really been... Um, an able recruiter for the, what was it? It was the 54th and the 55th Regiment of Colored Troops. And so um, he had been criticizing the president in his Douglas Monthly newspaper uh, around this. And there were others who, there was George Stearns who also uh, was a part of, of of criticizing the president and really working to get different things. There was also a major general, David Hunter, who, and I'm, whenever I'm using names and not giving you no information, that's a Google moment. 
I'm expecting, that's a homework assignment. That's for y'all to, to go and see that, that he was busy emancipating uh, slaves, saying that, that uh, anyhow, read about it. So look, look, he said he couldn't in good faith continue to recruit. Um, so Stearns asked him to go to Washington to talk to the president. And although he's unsure how he's going to be received on this, so in this day in August, he goes and he's without an appointment and he black man on a mission. And when he gets there, he says that President Lincoln appears tired, but he rose and extended his hand. Douglas is, is introducing himself, and he says Lincoln stopped him and said, I know who you are. You're Mr. Douglas. And he said he wasted no time getting to the point. He said, I wish to bring this. He said, I wish to bring this to his attention. This is what Douglas wrote. He said, first, colored soldiers ought to receive the same wages as those paid to white soldiers. Second, colored soldiers ought to receive the same protection when taken prisoner and be exchanged as readily and on the same terms as any other pr prisoner. You understand they were not exchanging black folks. They were killing them or enslaving them. And if Jefferson Davis should shoot or hang colored soldiers in cold blood, the United States government should retaliate in kind and degree without delay upon Confederate prisoners in, in their hands. He said Lincoln's voice quivered. As he explained, he said, if I could get hold of the men that murdered your troops, murdered our prisoners of war, I would execute them. But I cannot take men that have not had anything to do with this murdering of our soldiers and execute them. Now, this is an interesting point. Now, I'm going to get off topic just a moment to say that this is a familiar phrase. That when it comes often to black folks, any black folk will do. Any enslaved person will do. Any black man will do with a hoodie. Any, they just all look alike, it's all, they can all get the same thing. But here, there is a differentiation. We, can, we can't, unless we can identify exactly the ones, we can't do it. And I just, I know that's not what my talk is about, but I just, I'm, it's kind of about how life gets to be the way it is, and this is an important point. But to continue, so Lincoln did promise to sign any commission recommended by the Secretary of War for black soldiers. He did not commit, though, to equal pay. He said, uh, Douglas said later that though I was not entirely satisfied with the president's view, I was so well satisfied with the man and with the educating tendency of the conflict that I was determined to go on with the recruiting. So, um, okay, after the second inauguration, he, we're talking about how I never knew the degree to which Frederick Douglass was right up in there with President Lincoln. And as I came to understand it there, I heard inside my head, oh, I know why he was assassinated. I just, I hadn't thought that. I didn't have it as a conscious thought. But there was a moment when I realized how, how much of Lincoln's awareness and openness to that discourse I realized that he would have to be at risk at that time. Greater risk, I mean, I knew he was already at risk, I understood that, but now I could see at a human kind of personality level, kind of the coming and going. There's one story where Frederick Douglass tells the story that he, 
um, he gets there to see the president, you know, unannounced, but he's in line, and there are people there who've been there for days, and it occurred to me, we're talking in the 1800s, mid-1800s, and so he, people are just waiting. There's no system other than you just go. You know, there wasn't no online uh, doodle where you just sign up for the appointment and they send you a conference. What, uh -uh. They just lined up and they stayed overnight. Like, you know, some of the concerts people sleep out at the thing. For I'm just trying to paint a picture so y'all understand. So he's in the line and uh, he's realizing that he got stuff he needs to talk about. So he gives somebody his card to take up there. And once it gets up there, they go, oh yeah, get him. And you can picture on his way up there, what's going on. But you don't have to, because if you read the narrative, he tells you what they said as he passed. Because he's passing white folks who have been in line overnight. And here they are taking him in, in 1860, whatever this was at this point. Uh, so probably 63, four, five, right in there. <clears throat> so he gets in and, you know, the president seems, at least in everything that Douglas is saying about it, is very amenable and wants to hear and wants to know what is it and is open to hearing his opinion. Link, I'm, I'm sorry, after the Emancipation Proclamation, he's there for the speech. And um, he, I'm sorry, he's at the swearing-in ceremony. That's where he is. And he's walking to the White House and Douglas says, I had for a time looked upon myself as a man, but now in this multitude of the elite of the land, I felt myself a man among men. And I had just a moment in my heart of that, that delineation, that sense of, not only am I, like I knew so many black men who were only black men in the church, and it really, my eyes is like stinging. Because there were so many folks who were only black men in the lodge. Who were only black men on their block. In their neighborhood. But they were not black men on the job. They were not black men in the world. They were not black men at the supermarket or at the whatever it would be. They had to be in those specialized situations and circumstances where persons, where most of the people saw them as black men, not males. I'm, I'm differentiating here. Not males, but black men of honor. And so here we have Frederick Douglass in 1865. He's discerning that in this moment, he was finally looking at himself as a man among men. <clears throat> he says when he arrived at the door of the White House, two police officers stopped him because he was black. They took him rudely by the arm and ordered him to stand back, and they're putting him out and all of that. And he's saying, no, if you ask, and I've been there, if you just ask, you'll find out I'm supposed to be here, but they're not asking. And so somebody passes. He says, just then a man passed who recognized him. And he said, would you tell Lincoln I'm here? And he did. And then, of course, he was escorted into the East Room at that moment. And he says, even before, as he started heading toward him, he said, even before I reached him, he exclaimed so that all around him could hear, 
here comes my friend Douglas. He said, Lincoln took his hand and said, I'm glad to see you. I saw you in the crowd today listening to my inaugural address. How did you like it? And he said, he, he, you know, at first he's saying, you don't have time. You got a lot of people waiting to see you and all of this. But ultimately he said, Mr. Lincoln, that was a sacred effort. So the story, how life gets to be the way it is, it's consistent. It's to hold on to a righteous vision. Now, hear this very clearly. There are those moments in time when Douglas had to shift. It was not, this is not, and sometimes people misunderstand what we teach and endeavor to practice is that it's it's not going to be just a straight shoot. You don't go to the first foundation class and set your goal and then kick back and just watch it all unfold. There is going to be what for some appear to be the circuitous route. But for the one who holds steady, updating the vision, he said he knew, and there was a time when he was like, oh, I knew I should have gone. I should have gone because now they got me going back the other way down the river. I'm going to be further away from my goal. So that, but he began to pick up. He knew he had to pay even closer attention. I'm talking to somebody who's wondering how they're going to get to where it is they want to be. And you, while you must keep the vision, you're going to have to keep updating the vision. You're going to have to update your idea about what it is you think you're supposed to have. And I'm not arguing that you can't have that, but you're going to have to be willing to be, first of all, we know it has to be in alignment. Mental, emotional, spiritual, physical alignment. It's called the mental equivalent, but it's on every level. The moment that you are, so there's a moment. You know, Frederick Douglass, that, that first attempt in, in 1835 was with some folks because he had that, I'm like that, I want some folks to go with me. But when he actually had to go, he had to go by himself. And that was hard for him. He didn't want to just go because he knew he could help, but he had to do what he had to do. Now, some of y'all are hanging with folks. I'm just... I'm, mm, you tuned in, I'm going to have to tell you. It's not that you don't love them. It's not that your destinies aren't entwined in some way. It's just that in order for this part of the journey, in order for you to fulfill what is yours to fulfill, you may have to just do you. You may have to just do you. I don't even, you know, I hadn't planned. I, you know, I'm, ju I ju I'm doing as I'm told. So there's somebody who, yeah, yeah, you know that. Yeah, see, the bottom line is that truly, while we are all in this together, each of us has a personal individual and unique responsibility to be, to do, 
and thus to have. Hmm. There is only love. In this moment, in this place, I remember who I am, letting fear and worry fall away from me. I open my eyes and see there is only love. I absolutely marvel at the capacity for love that Frederick Douglass had, especially once you understand from whence he came. There is only love. I'm going to let Donnie Lee tell you about it. Mm. Clap your hands. Yeah. Oh. From this moment in this place, I remember who I am. Letting fear and worry fall away from me, I open my eyes to see that there is only love. That sets me free There is only love From this moment Say this moment woo, In this place I remember I remember Who I am Letting fear Letting fear And worry fall away oh, oh, I open my eyes to see That there is only There is only Oh
inspiration today, Donnie Lee, who's in uh, Las Vegas, just grateful for his music and musicianship and giving thanks for the village of sacred service, the folks who are in sacred service in our village just can't name nor number, but it takes, truly takes a village, so thank you. And a special thank you for those of you who are tuning in, and I know from places far and wide. In fact, be sure that you always let us know where you're, where you're tuning in from. So for right now, I'm going to ask you to just assume the position of prayer, whatever that means to you, allowing your eyelids to close. It might mean for some sitting up in bed, you know, pushing the plate away, putting the cup down. I don't know what it entails, but to just be with me in this attitude of gratitude and thanksgiving, to join me in divine recognition that there is one one life, one love, one peace, one joy, one heart, one beingness. It's the living one, the strong one. It's divine source by any name, called by anyone. It is the one, the source of all. And I know and I know that I know that right where I am right now, that I am one with the one, one in the one. I know this is true of all of us, that there is one, and we are all a part of the one, that literally, I am breathing the breath of the living one. And the living one is breathing me. This is true about all of us. We are all breathing the breath of the living one. And the living one is breathing us. We are living the life of the living one. And the living one is living us. Oh, and so knowing this, just this awareness puts me in an attitude of gratitude an attitude of infinite possibility that I know, especially having focused on the life of Frederick Douglass, that there is more to living than meets the eye always. That for every blockage, every perceived limitation, every point at which I feel excluded, every point at which any or all of us can feel that we do not have access or the acceptance that we desire or an opportunity that there is still the presence of the divine in which many answers to all the unasked questions that our heart is held that our mind is imbued with a certain wisdom 
an awareness of knowing that there is something more within each and every one of us, a greater yet to be, a greater possibility in living and loving and knowing and opening ourselves to the greater possibility, the full responsibility, the full vision and purpose for our living. Oh, I just give thanks. I know and I know that I know that for someone who is just realizing this truth that something quite magnificent is happening within that one, this is a seed planted in fertile soil, the divine realization of all of the infinite possibilities available to each and every one of us. Once we allow our bloated nothingness to get out of the way, that sense of undeservability, that sense of not knowing enough, that sense of whatever it is that keeps us from our full and rightful claim, even greater things shall we do. But only as we know whose we are and who we are. And so I speak this word, that it be a clarifying word, that it be an illuminating word, that it reveal the truth of our being, that we know in this moment how blessed we are. Oh, how loved we are. That there is something more in a Frederick Douglass kind of way that each of us may be enslaved to some idea of less than ness. And yet there's a moment in which we liberate ourselves from that thinking and embrace a greater good, a greater being, a higher calling. And for this I give thanks. So it is in absolute perfect gratitude that I just release this word, that I place it squarely <clears throat> into the law of love, of divine activity. That I just let go and I let God, that I, I release it, I let it go, I let it be. I know that it's done and done well. And so I allow it to be and unfold in absolute perfect order. Not just matching my picture, but something beyond. Something that heals everything that needs to be healed. Every hurt, every wound. Something that reveals and illuminates the truth of our being. I accept this. I let it be. And so it is. Amen. Ashe. Love matters.